got me thinking as you just uh, got settled in. We had the first song, and then Pastor Evan is praying for the one who's going to bring the word, and you're glad for that because he needs all the prayer he can get But um, before Pastor Bob comes up here. But you think, wait a minute, it's kind of early in the service for that, right? Right. Did I come in late? I mean, my, my caffeine is just starting to work here. I, I, well, we did this for two reasons. We wanted to catch the men who would be late because their wives were at retreat. We wanted to just catch them off guard and rattle them a little bit, have a little fun. No, not really. Sometimes, give it a little back. Sometimes the message that, that, that comes out of the word, out of the text that, that is before us in this week, sometimes that is a text that... that um, the Lord's table prepares us, reminds us of our forgiveness of Christ, and the table leads into that message. There are other times when the truth that is in that passage, in that text, like this chapter 21 of the Gospel of John that's before us this morning, that the truth that is in that passage actually leads us into the table. And so when that's the case, we'll, we'll, we'll happily turn things around and we'll go the way the Lord is leading, or at least the, to the best that we can perceive it. And so that's what we've done this morning. So don't get all discombobulated if things weren't kind of in the, just the order that you were expecting. And uh, I invite you to open your Bibles on that idea of fishers of men. As scary as that might be, as dangerous as that might be, yes, that is what Jesus has called those who follow him to be. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, even though that's scary. And as I, as I was describing to the kids, the first century church, late in the first century, about the time that John is writing this gospel, this is later than the others, and that, that, that uh, call, that example... That metaphor, fishers of men, has been well rehearsed in the church. It's in all the earlier Gospels. They all refer to that account. And so this is something that the church has grabbed hold of and run with. And yet, along the way, in times of persecution, like in the, in the later years under the Emperor Nero, and now under the Emperor Domitian, at the, towards the end of the first century, it's a dangerous time to be a Christian. The emperor wants to be honored acknowledged as Lord and God. He doesn't want you telling somebody about another Lord and God, this Jesus risen from the dead. Rome, as far as Rome is concerned, they have dealt with him. And here people are running all over the world telling everybody that Jesus is risen and forgiveness and eternal life is in his name, not in Rome or anywhere else. And that's not going over real well at times. There are times when the emperors are very much against that. And so there's this persecution that ebbs and flows and rises. And that's what John's church, that's what John's audience, those that he's writing this for, that's what they're feeling. They're feeling that heat. They're feeling the hot breath of Rome upon their backs if they will dare to step out and to speak up and to be fishers of men. And so we come to this last chapter of the, of the Gospel of John where we are strengthened, we're reminded that we can be what he has called us to be. We are not left on our own. In fact, Jesus is still with us. That Jesus is for us. He's with us and he's near, and that's, that should not make us nervous. That should not scare us. He is for us. He draws us to himself. He invites us to come nearer than we think we could dare. Jesus is with us, Jesus is for us, and he sends us. 
So that, that threefold, those three steps, that's what we're going to see as we jump into John chapter 21. And I've got that outline, in fact, on the back of your bulletins if you want to see it there and follow along. And let's, let's jump into God's Word. If you're following along in the church Bible, then uh, you'll find us on about page 907, 908, somewhere in there. And um, John chapter 21, Lord, would you open your word to us? Father, would you strengthen us? Would you encourage us? Would you, in fact, give us a boldness that doesn't come from ourselves, but a confidence that comes from you because we know you, and so we know we can trust you. Lord, show yourself to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter says, or he said to them, I'm going fishing. Just an announcement out of the blue. Hmm, what do we do? Well, I don't know. I'm going fishing. So they said, well, nothing else going on. We'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And I don't know why you'd be surprised at that. That seems to be a common theme with the disciples, as I mentioned. They caught nothing. I don't know how they made it. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Now, this children, do you have any fish? It's, it, it, if you're reading NIV, it probably says, friends, do you have any fish? It's a, it's a word that they're trying to catch it one way or another. It's a friendly word. It's a somewhat casual word. It's a colloquial word. If it was in Australia, they'd say, hey, mates, you got any fish? Or, or uh, in, uh, in uh, Britain, maybe it would be, hey, lads, you got any fish? Maybe we would say, hey, guys, do you have any fish? It's friendly, it's casual, it's familiar. It's not stiff like children as if they're being spoken to by their father. You got any fish? Well, we, they don't know who this guy is, but you've been fishing all night. You didn't catch anything. Just what you're waiting for is somebody standing on the shore saying, Hey, how'd it go? Did you catch anything? No. Stop with, that's not what, you're not, you're not waiting for that. Maybe he's looking to buy some fish fresh, fresh off the catch, right? That would be um, expected, but they don't have anything to sell. There's disappointment in the air, a little bit of embarrassment maybe. Well, he says, this friendly, friendly observer has some advice. Cast the net on the right side of the boat. That's what you've been doing. You were casting on the wrong side of the boat. Maybe you got the nets inside out. I don't know. Cast on the right side and you'll find some. So they cast, they, they cast their net, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea, and the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. And when they, they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread, fish and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the whole net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. 
Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus revealed himself. He showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This chapter is kind of called the epilogue of John. It is, re, it is the way the, the prologue at the front of the book gives us a glimpse ahead of what's coming. So this chapter pulls back. It grabs a bunch of those threads and begins to tie them together or, or makes points of contact all the way through. Like, again, Jesus revealed himself. Jesus is showing himself, and as he shows himself, he is showing us God. This is what our God is like. So when we say that Jesus is with us, you know that our God, our creator, our maker is with us. And here he is with them, risen from the dead. He's ascended to the Father. He still continues to visit in and make these appearance, and these are setting them up for the future. They're reminding them of things they already know, and the Spirit is going to be coming, and they are launching into a whole new life. And his presence there is to remind them of that. The disciples are fishermen. They're not catching any fish. Jesus, they're... they're Peter has this independent streak, and we kind of see it again here. <laughs> I'm going fishing. Here we are. We're in Galilee. Jesus sent us to Galilee. You know, we'd see him there, and they did see him there, according to the other Gospels. And what else are they going to do along the way? We don't know. Well, Peter says, well, let's go fishing then. They don't have, they don't have uh, a people following them because of Jesus' teaching and helping to support them because of Jesus' teaching. The rabbi was killed, struck down by Rome, and there's nothing that dries up your support faster. And uh, so if they're going to live, if they're going to eat, I guess what they know how to do is fish. But sometimes, sometimes the things you know to do is not the thing you're supposed to do. Actually, there's something other than that. There's something better than that. There's a new, there's a, there's a, there's a new calling that actually takes precedent over the normal things that you know and have done, the habits of the past, the way life always used to live. But we easily think along the way, we know God has called us. And yet we easily think, well, but I've missed it. Put yourself in Peter's boat here, so to speak. That, that Peter had made a strong claim, no matter about these other guys, I will never deny you. And then he does, just as Jesus said. And he's blown it. And, and Jesus is risen, and that's all very exciting. But maybe in Peter's mind still, it can't really be the same as it was before, as it could have been. We, we tend to think that God has this plan laid out for us, this path for us to follow. And sometimes we know we're supposed to make a turn, and yet we don't. Or sometimes we just miss the turn. We didn't know, but we've got ourselves off somewhere else, and we have missed God's path for us, and we're out there on our own. You ever feel like that? Do you remember when Garmin's first came out? Before Google Maps, before you had maps on your iPhone or your, or your Android, you had a Garmin maybe sitting on your dash or stuck to your window. And Garmin's were fun. Some of you men, ladies who are women's retreat, we'll talk about the men. Some of you men would select the woman's voice on the Garmin, right? Maybe it sounded something like your wife. And it, and it would say, turn left, and you would go straight smile to yourself. You can never get away with that at home. But I'm the captain of this ship. 
And she would holler at you, turn left, turn left, turn back. Then there'd be a pause, recalculating. And there was, lo and behold, a new way to get where you were supposed to go. And you could miss that turn too. You could, in fact, turn the opposite way. And she would shout at you and fuss at you again and then recalculating. I think it's that way in our walk with the Lord that there are times when we miss some turns. There are times when we take our own detours and we say, well, I, I, I just want my way. And we could easily think that. And the enemy will put it into our head that you're done. You had your chance. You did not follow. You're done. You're on the sidelines now. You're on the bench and others are in the game. Do you know there's more than one way for the Lord to get you and I where he intends to take us? And he will get us there. He doesn't lose one. That's one of the reasons there's all 153 of them still there in the story. He doesn't lose any. Everyone is counted because everyone counts. And he just recalculates. I, I, I look back at some of my choices and, and th- along the way, and I think there's been a lot of recalculating going on. I think there's been a lot of redirecting in the map, in the map again. Okay, Bob's going to, okay, Bob missed that exit. Okay, we're just going to go down. We're going to circle back, and we're going to come around, and we're going to take the next. And, and th- look, there we are, right where we were going. How did that happen? That's God's grace at work in the midst of our stubbornness, our obliviousness, whatever it is. Jesus is here working even though they're slow to perceive it. They think they're on their own to do their thing. Or maybe they're on on their own left to do Jesus' work that he said they were going to do greater works because he went to the Father. Here they are. How are we going to do it? I guess we're just going to do what we know. But he's still with them. Jesus is there even working even if we don't know his presence. John recognizes it. It's the Lord. Jesus is continuing his working in the same way. You can count on this. God will be God. God will continue to be God. God will continue to be God just as he said. Why does this description, this revealing to us of who God is in Jesus that's 2,000 years old to us now, why is it still as sweet as it was then? Because that's still how God is. And the way that he is for them is the way that he is for us. Because you can count on God to be God. He says, I am the Lord. I do not change. And he continues doing things like bread and fish. Where have you seen that before? Jesus has a way of feeding people with bread and fish, right? And uh, the part I love in this story is he's got got everything he needs. He's got the bread. He's got the fish. He's got the fire. And he says, hey, bring some of the fish that you caught. (laughs) as if you caught them, right? He gives us credit for what he does, right? Bring bring those fish. Go ahead, and and we get to contribute that which he has done through us into the mix. In a post death and resurrection era, with Rome breathing over, hanging over them threateningly, a Christian might wonder, is Jesus still with us, or are we on our own? Is Jesus still working or is it up to us? And Jesus is still with us and Jesus is still working. This post-resurrection breakfast on the beach is another way of reminding the disciples. And as he tells the story, John is reminding believers in his day and age and in ours, Jesus is still with us. He knows what's going on. He knows where the fish are. He directs us. He leads us. He provides for us. He empowers us. And there are exactly 153 fish 
we have a, we have a Bible study. It meets every Monday at 7 o'clock. You're all welcome. And um, we start talking about the upcoming message there and begin to dialogue, work through it, read the text, what emerges. And one of the questions that came up on, on that Monday two weeks ago was, why, why, Pastor Bob, are there 153 fish? And being the student of the word that I am, I answered, I don't know. Why are there 153 fish? And I, so I, I had to dig into that. There's 153, and it says that particularly. So there must be a reason you dig into that. And after a lot of study, I've come to realize that I don't know. I don't know why 153, but I think I do know why there's an exact number. It's an overwhelming number. It's a surprising number. That, I won't go into all the math, but these fish had to be at least six pounds uh, because of the type of fish that are caught in the Sea of Galilee and, the, and how big they get. They, they get up to nine pounds. So we're going to say these are large fish. They've got to be at least six. And there's 153 of them. You do the math. That's right. That's 983 pounds. That's a lot of fish in one net for a, for a boat that's only at most 27, 28 feet long. About seven foot wide, maybe from the, from the very bottom up to the top of the sides, it's about four and a half feet. It's not a big boat. And the Sea of Galilee can be a little rough, especially when you're dragging a thousand pound anchor behind you in the water that's actually swimming and wiggling and, yeah. So that's a lot of fish in a net that doesn't break. Earlier the net broke. But this time the net doesn't break. And this time they're able to pull it all the way to shore. How does Peter drag a thousand pounds of net and fish Onto the shore. I don't know. Except that God's grace empowers us for that what he gives us to do. But not one of these fish is lost. Every fish is counted because every fish counts. And God is able to hold together. The net was not torn is specifically pointed out in the story for us. And I love Peter's response in all this. John whispers over to him. It's the Lord. John's a perceptive one it seems like. And what does Peter do? He doesn't argue and he doesn't debate. He, he, he pulls on his tunic and he jumps in the water. He's not going to wait for the, for the boat to clear that thousand yards, for them to gather the net and get that organized and then come along to shore. Peter's going. These, uh, these other six, they can handle the fish. He's going to Jesus. I love that because it's not what we would expect Peter to do. You say, well, what do you mean? Peter's always the first one to jump into whatever it is. Peter's always right forward. But remember what happened with Peter? He did that one time too many, and he went out and wept bitterly, disappointed. Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. But for Peter, can it really be the same? You would expect Peter maybe to be hanging on kind of the outside of the circle, listening in, glad to be there too, but understanding he's disqualified himself from really being a part of what's going on and what Jesus is going to do. But that's not the case at all. And Peter is able to run into, he's able to swim into Jesus' embrace and welcome because there's nothing between his Lord, his, he and his Lord. There's nothing between himself and the Savior that he is able to fully accept his acceptance in Jesus. You see, when we come to the Lord, when we, we believe by faith in him that his death covers my guilt, his death removes my shame, his, his standing for me gives me a new name, I am a child of God, and yet there is this echoing around of guilt 
and of failure and of falling short and things that I should have done and things that I shouldn't do. And, and the shame of that echoes around inside my head and inside my heart. And it makes me feel like, okay, I'm in, but don't get too close. Don't try to get too close. Who do you think you are, really? God knows about this stuff that you can hide from the others. Don't try to get too close with him. That's not the case with Peter. It's not the case with Jesus. And it need not be the case with you and I. Jesus is with us, and we can run into his presence without fear and without hiding because Jesus is for us. That's what we see in the next section. Jesus is with us. Jesus is still doing what Jesus does with us and, and through us. But not only that, Jesus is for us. It's not merely, it's not a tasks-oriented kind of relationship with the Lord. Sometimes we think God is saving people and God is building his church because he needs an army because he's got stuff to do. There are other people to reach. And it's all a very task-oriented thing because we're a very task-oriented culture. And we need to brush that stuff aside and how it influences and pollutes our understanding. Our God is intrinsically, inherently a relational God. There is nothing that he would do through his church that God cannot jolly well do all on his own. And yet, he invites his children to come in and play and join him in this. He is for us. They gather in, there's a charcoal fire. We've had a charcoal fire. We had bread and fish before. We had a charcoal fire before, didn't we? We had a charcoal fire in the Gospel of John just, just a couple of chapters ago. There was a charcoal warming fire there in the courtyard. That's where the denial took place. Isn't that kind of cheap of John to bring that up again? It's not. Peter's already dead. Peter doesn't care. Peter's not being ashamed or embarrassed by this. In fact, Peter is probably up there watching this unfold, watching John's pen and saying, yeah, yeah, tell him. Peter's at the place where he would love, like Paul's at the place where he could go through his list of failures. He could go through this list of disqualification, vicious rebellion and attacking against the church before God redeems him. And he could use that to simply say that I'm the chiefest of sinners. If Jesus will save me, he'll save anybody. And Peter said, Jesus will use me. He'll use anybody. You go ahead. You tell him, John. That's where Peter's coming from. Because Peter's not pretending anymore. Peter's in the Lord's presence. There's no need for pretense or pretending anymore. And this charcoal fire is to remind us of that. What happens next? Let's read in verse 15. When they'd finished breakfast, breakfast at the beach, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, well, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So, first of all, he asked him, 
do you love me more than these? That's the unusual part of the first question. Do you love me more than these? Because Peter, not too long ago, um, just prior to Jesus' death, Peter had said, after, after Jesus warns them that they're all going to flee, they're all going to forsake him, Peter says, well, I know about all these blokes, he said, but I'll never leave you. I will go with you all the way to death. Jesus says, no, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before, before daylight. Do you love me more than these? And Peter simply answers, I love you. And there's a chain, there's a play in the words going on. And some commentators would suggest maybe it's just a, vari- a variation in the words. Maybe there's not meant to be a difference here, but maybe there is. Uh, the, the, the first love is an all-encompassing. It's a giving of self, a sacrificial love, agape. It's a, that's a word you're familiar with, possibly. The, the next love is a different kind of love. It's a very relationship, companion, fellowship, friendship-oriented love. It's a love that would emphasize the relational aspect more than the sacrifice aspect. Some consider it a, a step down in, it's not a level of commitment, it's a different descriptive word, though. Emphasizing friendship. And Peter's not claiming that he's going to lay it everything out there anymore. He's not claiming what he's going to do. He's simply saying, I am in relationship with you. You have made me your friend, and you know we. I am with you. I am your friend. I love you. It's a band of brothers kind of love, a commitment together. And he doesn't even touch the comparison. This is the end of needing to overstate for myself. This is the end of an advancing myself, individual spirituality that compares myself to others exchanged for a, I'm known by the Lord so I can be known by others. I don't need to pretend. It's a discipleship that confronts pretending even more than it confronts failure or weakness. We tend to keep score, don't we? We tend to confront failure or weakness, especially weaknesses that others have that we don't have or at least nobody else knows that we have. And that somehow makes us feel a little bit better about where we are as compared to others and that somehow tries to comfort us in some way against what we know to be true about how far we ourselves have to go, how far we seem to fall short of our expectations, that we assume are also the Lord's expectations, that we need to get this stuff sorted out so that we could also be closer to the Lord. Peter's left that behind. Peter jumps in the water, and he's swimming for the beach. He's going to Jesus. He's not even worried about finishing the work. He's going to Jesus. He says, Lord, you know, you have put me in relationship with you. He asks him again. The exchange continues the third time. And Peter is especially grieved the third time. Maybe now it's sunk into Peter that that the charcoal fire, the question three times. And this time, Jesus has actually stepped down in the word. He's gone to the phileo word as he asks Peter the question, do you phileo me? Do you love me as a brother? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. You know all things. You know my failures. You know my weaknesses. You know that I love you. We don't have to get everything else cleaned up first. Jesus doesn't demand a promise. Jesus doesn't say, will you promise never to do that again? No. He just says, do you love me? Then tend my lambs, feed my sheep. He commissions him still. He puts him back into service. There's a necessary reminder here. 
especially in view. Think again. This is the, the, there's, there's a church setting here where the church is experiencing persecution. They're experiencing trouble. They're feeling the pressure. And in the midst of the pressure, there are many who have failed. There are many others who have withdrawn. It's not worth the cost. It's not worth the pressure. It's not, I'm not up to the threats. And Jesus restores in this story. He personally, individually restores those who have stumbled. He restores those who have failed out of fear of what others are going to think or do. And that's good for you and I. Because there are times when we have withheld or withdrawn out of fear of what others are going to think or do. And we think, well, how can I be a witness? How can I be used of the Lord? What would the Lord do with me? I wasn't willing to speak up when I had a chance. I wasn't willing to, to talk about my faith whenever when, when somebody asked me what made me different or what I thought about this or that. How could God use me if I'm too afraid to say anything? Maybe I'm not worthy of that relationship with him, and yet Jesus embraces Peter and invites Peter back into that relationship with him and walking with him and working with him. And that loyalty with Jesus is lived out in the littlest things. Feed my lambs. Tend my little ones. The little things for the little ones. Do you love him? Do you love those that he loves? There's a caring for others that is, that is intimate with or intricately linked with our own devotion to and closeness with the Lord is lived out in a caring for and attending for others. That Jesus tells Peter when he's about to fail, he's going to fail, but when he is strengthened, when he is restored, Peter, you go and strengthen your brethren. Nobody can strengthen them better out of their fear and their failures than somebody who has feared and failed and known the Lord's restoration by his grace. You see, we keep score, we disqualify, and that's not a game that Jesus is playing with us here. That's what we need to know. Just as Peter could run to the beach, just as Peter could, could receive and accept Jesus' embrace and recommission, we can come to this table into his presence knowing that no matter where we've been and what we've done, that our Savior invites us into relationship with him, not to get things cleaned up first so that we can come, but to come and walk through the things we need to walk through. Jesus is unpacking the past here. He's processing, is a word I think we would use today. He's processing through what Peter did do and experience with Peter in the past with him rather than saying, Peter, go get that sorted out and then you come. Peter comes and Jesus will walk through that stuff with him. Jesus is with us. Jesus is not against us, keeping score, jotting down the failures, the lack of faith. Jesus is for us, always lifting, restoring, and Jesus sends us. That's the third thing that happens in this. Okay, so there he is, and you see that sending, that feed my sheep, tend my little ones, feed, uh, feed my lambs. And then verse 18 Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Peter, you were used to doing your own thing. Wearing what you wanted to wear, going where you wanted to go. Sound like a teenager, anyone? Yeah. When you're young, you want to wear what you want to wear. You want to go where you want to go. But when you're older, 
You'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he's, he's said to show by what kind of death that Peter was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. With the shadow of a cross hanging also over Peter in his future life and ministry, even as it hung over Jesus' life throughout his ministry, the shadow of the cross was always hanging over him. He knew that was coming everywhere he went, and yet he went to follow his Father in his Father's calling. And so we do the same, no matter what hangs over us, even if it's our own weakness and mortality that creeps up upon us and tells us, what can I do? And yet he says, you follow me. Jesus sends us. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? Peter saw him and said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about John? What's going to happen with him? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The comparing thing, the worrying about other people thing. We spend a lot of our time, a lot of our energy worrying about other people, right? We spend a lot of our time fruit inspecting instead of fruit bearing. We spend a lot of our time worrying about others when we ought to be focusing on our own following of Jesus. Don't worry about the assignment of others. That's what Jesus is saying here. You worry about your own assignment. It's a football day, right? Football's on Sunday afternoon. Well, if you're a college fan, football was on yesterday. What do they say? You run your route. You block your assignment. Don't worry what the other guys in the line are doing. You have got to block your assignment. You miss your assignment, and that guy's coming through. You run your route. You block your assignment. You stay in your lane. You do your job. You be faithful. We spend a lot of our time thinking about, talking about, worrying about other people. Lord, what would you have me to do? And let's keep pressing on there. John is prepping the church even for his own departure. You see, Peter's asked, what about him? And John uses that to, to raise this one more point. So the saying spread in verse 23, among the brothers, among believers, among Christians, that this disciple, John, was not to die. Meaning that they thought what this meant when Jesus had these words to Peter. That story spread through the church, and they thought that that meant that Jesus wasn't going to die, or, or, or rather that John wasn't going to die before Jesus returned. So if you're there as a Christian, and you know John's still alive, but you know John's getting old, man, how much longer can John keep going? You know, man, that guy, he is, he's amazing, but, but seriously, he's, he's getting old. He's, he's, he, the clock is running down here. That means Jesus must be coming soon. Now, if that's your thinking, if that's your, if that's your assumption, then what happens when John dies and Jesus has not yet come? Have you been disappointed in what you thought the Lord was going to do and it didn't happen that way? Has that happened before or is it just me? It's just me. Oh, okay. No, it isn't just me. Have you read some of the books about when Jesus was going to come? They were really big in the early 80s, late 70s. And then it keeps kind of coming. There's a new reason to adjust the dates from there. It's a great way to sell books as well. Everybody wants to know when Jesus is going to come even those that aren't ready for him. And yet, one date after another passes, and it didn't happen. 
I remember early, early, early in my Christian walk, I was quite, I was quite sure that that whole Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth, and if not 1981, then certainly by 1988, Jesus was going to be here. And here we are. And where he is, it didn't come about. And that can, that can cause you to be a little disillusioned and to expect a little less. That's the danger. And what we need to do is go back and recalibrate. Wait, 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 wait a minute. That was my assumption. Is that what God actually said? And John is preparing the church, and maybe he's preparing us as well, to not rely on our own assumptions, but rely on who our God is and what, in fact, he has said. He said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? That was the point, not the other assumption. We can miss the point as we jump to the assumption. So, he says, Peter, you follow me. You tend my lambs. You feed my little ones. You feed my sheep. Peter, this is what I've got for you to do. And even if it means you're sent into a firestorm, even if you're, it means that you're sent to stand before Nero and that he's going to ultimately execute you, even that's what it meant for Paul and that's what it meant for Peter, I don't know what it means for you and I. I don't know what's ahead of us, but what I do know is this. Our Lord would say to us, as he said to them, you follow me. And as you follow him, you're going to strengthen others rather than criticize them. As you follow him, you're going to invite others into that same embrace of God's grace in faith in Jesus rather than into judgment and condemnation. You're going to invite others into a same relationship with Jesus that you ourselves are walking in. And that's what he sends us into as well. Isn't it amazing that Peter still gets sent? He's not disqualified. He's not done. He's not benched. He's not second string. In fact, he and John are going to be right there on the day of Pentecost and the days that follow. And look what God is going to do. This kind of message, breakfast at the beach, where Jesus says, let's go fishing. First it was Peter, and it seemed to be Peter's idea. But Jesus is the one that has sent us into make us fishers for men. And Jesus says to them there, fish this way. Jesus says to us today, let's go fishing. And to do that out of this warmly received and embraced relationship with him. Gathered around breakfast at the beach, if you will. And as we come to this table this morning, it can easily be a religious thing that we regularly do. Once a month, here we are. And yet this table could be a reminder to us this morning. As, as those who are serving, as I invite them to come forward, I want, I want us to think about this table a little bit differently this morning. This table is a reminder of our salvation in Jesus. But I want it to also be this morning a reminder of our relationship with him, our fellowship with him, the invitation that we have in Jesus, warmly received into his presence enabled by his power in us to do through us what we could never do in ourselves. 
To, to be able to come freely and confidently, not because I know I've measured up, I've kept myself clean, but because he has made me clean in spite of all that I've done and even do. That I come into his presence. I can jump in the water. I can swim for shore without any embarrassment, without any hanging back. As you Come to this table this morning as you participate, receiving first that bread and then that cup. I want to invite you to realize it that way. And perhaps this morning, that's new for you. Perhaps this whole thing that we do is a little different. You're not sure what this is all about. We take the bread and we'll pass it one to another. And that is an invitation. You take. You take. You receive Jesus for yourself. His blood, which is our forgiveness by his death for us in the new covenant. This cup symbolizes that, and it symbolizes to take his death for yourself. And if this morning you can simply say, within your heart, even right where you're at, you can say, Lord, I believe you concerning Jesus. I believe you that Jesus, when he left heaven, when he left your side and he came to earth fully human and he died for me as God's son, an eternal death that covers not only me, but any human who will believe in him and receive God's forgiveness in Jesus. Lord, I believe you for your forgiveness for me in Jesus. And if that is your confidence this morning, we invite you to join in this table with us. Come freely. Come boldly, come confidently before his table of grace.